Hi, we're here with Jeremy Longhurst of Broadwater talking about next year's ISAS meeting, which will take place from May 13th to 15th in Miami Beach down in sunny Florida. Jeremy, tell us about the meeting. I think the annual meeting next year will actually be superb. It's under new leadership, and that leadership has absolutely committed to refocusing the meeting. And it's going to refocus on being highly practical. It's going to focus on new techniques, new technologies, and the information you get from that meeting is the type of information you can go back to your practice next week and implement it and use it. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Uh, today, we are delighted to have with us as our guest, Eddie McRae. He is a third-year medical student at the Campbell University Osteopathic School of Medicine. He's currently taking some time off and doing research as a research fellow at Duke University. Uh, here with us today to talk about an organization that he's helped to found and lead um, geared towards helping students around the country at programs with uh, not a strong neurosurgery presence at home or students at DO or military programs, helping them get connected, find educational resources and research resources um, in their pursuit of neurosurgery. Eddie, welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's an honor to be on the show and uh, I'm ready to discuss more about our program. Great. So then why don't we do just that? Why don't you set the stage for us and kind of lay out uh, this organization that you help run, uh, what is it and what are your goals? Absolutely. So uh, we're called Energy. That's N-E-R-G. And that stands for the Neurosurgery Education and Research Group. Um, a good friend of mine, Mike Quartz, a uh, third year student at Kansas City University, and I had this vision to start a group that's going to promote quality and quantity in neurosurgery education um, and research for particularly students at uh, programs that don't have a home neurosurgery department. Um, both of us were kind of in the similar situation in our pursuit of neurosurgery that we felt like we didn't have that uh, pool of resources at our school and that um, that mentorship and kind of framework of um, getting that experience to know what to do next and how to proceed forward. And we kind of figured it out on our own. So uh, we decided that we felt it was right for us to provide that opportunity for other students and build that build that. So currently we uh, have 15 members and we are, we are pushing towards trying to expand. That's great, Eddie. I mean, many of our listeners out there are interested in neurosurgery as a field, and maybe you can tell them a little bit about your, maybe how you struggled with this and what, what incited you to put together energy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I started medical school, um, particularly at an osteopathic school, I was pretty aware that there are some particular challenges um, in the pursuit of very competitive specialties such as neurosurgery. Um, so I planned from the beginning to try to uh, overcome those obstacles or circumvent those challenges. Uh, but even with that 
being known. Um, I struggled early on finding research opportunities. I did get involved in um, a few different projects, but most of them weren't neurosurgery related. And um, I didn't get the full experience. Um, also of note, I didn't, during our neurosurgery blocks in our neurosurgery education, um, although it prepared me for boards and the, the basic level of understanding for a medical student, I didn't get that full experience, clinical experience and educational experience um, in neurosurgery. So with that being said, I immediately felt that I was at a disadvantage and felt that, you know, I may be behind other students uh, pursuing, pursuing neurosurgery uh, nationwide. So with that being said, I had to make some roundabout changes for myself and decided that maybe I can try to bridge that gap for other students. You know, I, I got to tell you, in my own experience, uh, last year, I was an intern here at Rush, and we had a sub-I who rotated with us from outside, and he did not have neurosurgery at his home institution. He was doing a handful of away rotations for the year, as one would in that situation, and we were his first stop. And so typically, the way these things go is, you know, a student will rotate at their home institution first, and that's kind of a a mini boot camp or a training experience where the residents in their home program get them ready to go out and visit other institutions and, and try to help them look good when they get out there. And this young man didn't have that. We were his first sub-I ever, his first rotation with neurosurgery. So we all tried to take him under our wings somewhat. But obviously, in a situation like that, your first foray out into the world with a neurosurgery program of strangers you're not going to shine as bright as the conventional away rotator who went through four weeks at home. So I can understand why people in your position and, and the students that you're trying to help with your organization need and could benefit from this kind of help. So having gone through it yourself, what kinds of things are you setting up? What kinds of interventions or materials and resources have you found to help students get ready for their first neurosurgery experience? in a department where they've never met any of the people? Absolutely, great question. Um, so our foundational, uh, the, the foundational component of this is the research process. Um, and I'll kind of elaborate on, on, on the other areas surrounding that. Um, but our main thing first is to get the students the research experience and understanding the scientific process, especially how it relates to neurosurgery. Um, so we have uh, guests uh, lecturers come in from various different institutions who give insight on um, how to develop a research question, how to go about a literature search, how to interpret the statistical analysis, those type of things, as well as um, helping these students get involved and matched up with mentors or, or principal investigators on particular projects. And that helps kind of bridge, kind of bridge that scientific gap so that, first of all, when the students do go rotate and they're looking up different studies or trying to uh, broaden their education or present a topic, they actually have the base understanding and know-how to even navigate the scientific literature. Um, so kind of bridging off of that is the mentorship. So we're fortunate that we've been able to reach out to a number of different attending physicians and residents who are interested in mentoring students. And so these mentors come in and actually try to provide that uh, missing one-on-one -on -one guidance that you may uh, lack if you don't have a home neurosurgery program or if you're not able to rotate at your home, home institution. So that's kind of the basis um, of what we do. And then um, outside of that are other ancillary things such as uh, journal club presentations, oral presentations on certain neuroscience topics, um, meetings and um, lectures about career development, boards prep, 
um, how to present a patient and you know what how to answer common questions that you might encounter during a rotation. So we kind of just try to bridge that gap and fill all those things that they may have gotten during that home neurosurgery rotation. Now, Eddie, you bring up a very good point because those are things that are just part and parcel. I was rounding this morning with our residents, talking with them and educating them about life and many aspects of what we do as neurosurgeons. But let me just pull you back a second. Um, you know, in terms of the situation with 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 energy, you're talking about a couple of DO programs, and I think it's worth spending a little bit of time going over that because some of our listeners may not know what that means, or some reside outside the United States where DO programs are are highly uncommon, I should say. And um, I guess by way of introduction, most people think about doctors as being MDs or medical doctors, right? And we are what we call allopaths. And then there's a separate subset of doctors called osteopaths, which have a degree called a DO, a doctor of osteopathy. And um, I understand in the Midwest that DOs are, are, are sort of very similar to MDs. And in terms of licensure and law, uh, they are they are one and the same. In other words, the privileges of a DO or MD degree are are quite similar. But we also have different board examiners, and and we uh, are merging those uh, slowly. I actually had a role uh, when I was in the Congress of Neurosurgeons with Nate Selden, who was on our podcast, who's the chair at OHSU. He he and I uh, um, brought the DOs in, if you will, to organize neurosurgery. There was a lot of resistance uh, from allopaths, which is the MDs. And we also had a Neil, um, uh, a Neil uh, Nanda on who is in the process of merging a DO school with, uh, with a uh, MD school and the departments or programs of neurosurgery. So it's very interesting. But some allopaths will look at this and say, well, you know, osteopaths, their core is sort of against what neurosurgeons represent. Like if you look on Wikipedia, it says that osteopathy is a type of alternative medicine that emphasizes physical manipulation of muscles and bones. And, you know, it's quite different than cutting people open. It's much more holistic. That's always been the push, right? It's much more focused on uh, things that treat the whole human body, whereas surgeons, we're very, very uh, much based in science and uh, organ-specific pathologies. So make a pitch to the to the folks out there who don't may, maybe understand what being a DO is like of why osteopaths should be neurosurgeons at all. And, and as a, another disclaimer, one of my partners is an osteopath. So give that pitch so we can better understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when it comes to osteopathic medicine, I think one thing that I like to always um, clarify when I'm when I'm explaining it to other people is that um, osteopathic manipulative medicine, which is the manipulation component, is what we just consider another tool in the bag. Um, previously in the past, when you know osteopathic medicine was founded in the late 1800s, um, manipulation was the core of osteopathic medicine. At this point, um, I think it's pretty safe to say uh, for most people and most people practicing osteopathic medicine, it's just another tool in the bag. So when I relate that to neurosurgery, um, you know, Say you have you know patient X and they're going through a particular disease process um, somewhere along the way, maybe before it's time for a surgical intervention, it might be just another uh, conservative treatment or conservative management option to try. And maybe in some situations it provides relief, and maybe in some situations it doesn't. Uh, but I don't think that at this point it's the end all be all. So when it comes to neurosurgery, I think that an osteopathic neurosurgeon still has the same. Um, overall mentality, same goals, and, um, you know, same ability as an allopathic neurosurgeon, but they may just also have another tool in the bag, so to say, um, along the way, 
before surgical management is uh, required. But let me just follow up on that. So are you saying that you're better than us because you have extra tricks, right? So in other words, I, I don't know how to manipulate people. I would never pretend to do that and I would never do that. I would send them to a chiropractor, but there's got to be a trade-off, right? I mean, if you say you can do everything I can do, plus you understand all this stuff, then are you making the claim that somehow you're more well-rounded or better equipped to, to handle patients than allopaths? Oh, no, not at all. Not In no way am I saying that uh, anyone is better than anyone else, um, but it's just, as I mentioned, just another option of something that you can do. Um, when you look at it that way, I guess maybe it can sound that way, but really it's just another tool. And just like anything else and other physicians outside of uh, osteopathic manipulation, um, some people may have certain skills um, that other people may not. And so I don't think it's about one being better than the other. I think it's just kind of more about the principle of osteopathic medicine, which is that, you know, the body is self-regulating and has the ability to self-heal. And if you can supplement that or support that, um, the body may be able to heal itself with less intervention. So I don't think that it makes anyone better than another, but it just gives another option. And it's similar to uh, referring someone for a chiropractic or um, physical therapy or one of those type of things. I'm curious now in the in the year that you're spending outside of your own program um, at Duke as a research fellow, and I, I, I suppose I'm not sure how much clinical time you're having there, um, con considering this difference in your background and the, the philosophy of your clinical training, um, if you've had any clinical exposure there or just, you know, interacting with the residents, interacting with the physicians at Duke, um, what aspects of the practice of medicine in an allopathic um, context have you noticed are most different about at your own institution, be it philosophical or practical day-to-day -day things in the interaction with patients? Um, so I've had only limited experience or limited interaction with the clinical side, um, mainly due to the pandemic situation. But overall, I haven't really noticed many differences. And that's one thing that I typically highlight to other people is that um, there's this idea or this mentality that there's some type of holistic or um, other some alternative mentality that osteopathic physicians have um, compared to allopathic physicians or vice versa. But in the end, I think that the, the point remains the same, that both are patient focused, um, both are focused on whatever they can do best to get the best patient outcomes. Both are, both are focused on um, using the best data and empiric evidence to provide the best treatment options. And um, in the end, normally I can't honestly tell the difference between uh, the two in practice. Um, the only situations where I have noticed a difference is if a physician does offer the manipulative treatment um, as a treatment option. But otherwise, um, I, I don't really notice the difference in philosophy and practice. I can say that at an institution like Duke um, or other institutions of the like, kind of one of the differences is the volume and the environment is a lot different. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if that's necessarily due to the difference in osteopathic versus allopathic as opposed to the difference of large academic center versus a uh, small community hospital. Sure. And, and so I, I asked that um, kind of as a springboard to, to turn back and consider your organization again, Energy. These students uh, with, with whom you work and these students that you help connect with physicians around the country, um, in general, how have their experiences been interacting with not only folks at other institutions, which is beneficial, 
um, as they, you know, uh, approach their interview process across the country and outside their home institution. But how have their interactions been overall between, you know, DO programs interacting with MD mentors remotely or once they get on the road? Um, so far, things have been very smooth. Um, we do also have some allopathic students in our organization as well. And I feel like the interactions between uh, either type of student and either type of intending or mentor has been um, very smooth and uh, very homogeneous. The, I mean, at least at this level, um, no, there's kind of been no difference in interaction. Um, and the main, the main focus has, re is, has uh, remained central and that is to help promote these students uh, become the best they can at this level and to help them along their pursuit to neurosurgical residency and a career in neurosurgery. So um, although we are still a new organization so far, uh, I feel like all the members are getting a good experience. Eddie, that's great. I, you've made a great case for this. So give us an example of a success story. So you basically are, are uh, a club or an organization. You're getting people involved. Talk us through like maybe a case example, case study of how this has been successful. Sure. So, um, although we were only, we've been up and going for only a few months, um, within that time, I'll just give a couple examples. Um, we have some students who are, uh, have now been linked up with, uh, a neurosurgery training, uh, uh, program or organization. Um, they've got an opportunity to, uh, work one-on-one -on -one with some residents and physicians virtually from, various institutions, as well as get involved in the writing process, uh, work with their editorial board and get a little bit more foundational um, information and support regarding understanding neurosurgery research and clinical, the clinical side of things. So even within just a couple of short months, we've got, you know, four or five students involved in that from various different institutions. And this uh, or particular organization has uh, some pretty felt fairly well-known uh, neurosurgeons involved from some large organizations um, who have been gracious enough to dedicate their time and uh, mentorship and resources to helping these students. Um, additionally, we have uh, pretty much everyone in the organization, which is about 15 members right now. Um, they're they're linked up in small groups with attending physicians and resident uh, oversight, working on various different projects, um, everything from prospective studies to uh, reviews and meta-analysis. Um, so, so far, it seems that it's, the group is working as, as planned. Um, things are taking off faster than we expected. And it seems that it's so far a success for everybody in the organization. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And congratulations are due to you and your, your colleagues um, helping these students around the country, uh, you know, go, go through the same path behind you. I wonder with this year in particular, with um, you know the, the lack of away rotations for students, with uh, virtual interviews looming on the horizon, uh, what what steps has your organization taken, or or even just what are you hearing from students that you're helping about how they're going to approach this year coming at it without a home program? Oh, great question. So fortunately, in our organization, uh, most of the students are in their earlier years of medical school, so. That isn't a particular issue at the moment for them, um, but may still be an issue in years moving forward, turn them, uh, depending on how this pandemic plays out moving forward. But I have heard from many students that, you know, it's a major disadvantage. Um, and for example, uh, if you're, say, coming from maybe not a large name school, maybe an osteopathic school, um, or maybe you have some something on your application that 
may make you slightly less competitive or may not make you stand out as much. You know, those away rotations and audition rotations are an opportunity for you to really show program directors and residents and uh, everyone else in the, a particular organization that, you know, you are fit to be here and that you'd be a great member of the team. So losing that really uh, is a major disadvantage, especially in a field that's so competitive, such as neurosurgery. So, Eddie, can you tell us a little about, you know, the ge- geographic limits? In other words, uh, can people volunteer for this organization from Canada or Latin America, or, or are you confined to, United, to the United States? Is there a geographic limitation? Tell us a little about the mechanics of who can participate. Absolutely. So um, as of right now, we um, are across the nation. We have students from everywhere, from the East Coast to the West Coast, uh, various different institutions. Our vision um, hopefully we can get to this level by next year. Our vision is that this would be a national organization with regional subgroups or pods, and those pods would be would have uh, residency and um, attending faculty oversight, and you would apply to um, your group or your pod based on the region and, um, you know, based on certain qualifications. If you meet those, then you would be accepted into your regional group. As of now, there are no regional groups, and we're just all one. Uh, one group, but uh, over time we would like to I- expand this and and have it based on kind of geographic location. And we think one of the benefits of that is that you know you you get crossover between different institutions, um, different levels of uh, program size, um, osteopathic and allopathic, and it's based on region and not necessarily based on any other division. So we think that that would be best, and that's where we're looking to go in, in the long term. Well, very good. Always, uh, always good to have the five-year plan down. So, Eddie, for our listeners, both um, students who may benefit from your group and its assistance, but also for uh, residents, attendings, anyone who may want to contribute and help these students as you and your friends have been, how can people find you online and get in contact with you? Um, so, currently right now, we're in the process of getting together our uh, I guess you could say our marketing um, aspects, so social media, uh, website, those things are kind of in the works. Um, so for right now, I'm, I'm available at email. So if someone, if anyone would like to reach out directly, they can email me at e underscore McCray, M-C-C-R-A-Y, 0909, at email.campbell.edu. Uh, if you have any questions or if you'd like to be involved in the organization, uh, feel free to reach out. Um, and we will certainly soon have a website as well as all the social media channels um, up and active. So be on the lookout for that as well. Great. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me guys.